Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning for WorkInSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. I love contrast, contradictions, the unexpected. It can be as simple as a flower in the desert, a kid quietly reading a book when all of their other friends are on their phones, or Tom Brady going to the Buccaneers. Alright, maybe I didn't love that last one so much. But on a grand scale, I tend to seek these things out, always on the hunt for contrasting elements. I I don't know exactly why. It's just one of the quirks of individuality, I guess. But these moments of contrast bring me great joy. I guess, as I think about it a little bit, they remind me that the journey is not predictable, that patterns and assumptions aren't definite. Nature and people are always able to change and throw you a curveball when you are looking dead red. And isn't that an incredible lesson in and of itself? Doesn't it hearken you back to the idea your mother drilled into your head not to judge a book by its cover? That we as people are all the sum of our actions and actions themselves are individual and unpredictable? All right, maybe I'm going a little too abstract here and I need to rein it in. I get it. But if you haven't noticed lately, our society is largely based on the superficial judgment of others. We see looks and we judge. We see patterns, and we assume. It is maddening. I can't say we've lost touch with compassion, empathy, and understanding for each other, because I'm not sure we ever had it. Look at the history books. Well, I'm here to admit that I made the same mistake just last week, and it was really enlightening. I assumed I knew someone based on my superficial knowledge of their past, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Stu Grimson played 13 seasons in the NHL as one of the most feared enforcers in the game. 211 career fights, of which he estimates he won about 80% of them. And if you watch the videos, I think he's right. His nickname is the greatest in sports, the Grim Reaper. I mean, come on. You're a fighter with the name Grimson and you earn the nickname Grim Reaper. It just, that is the greatest combination of nickname and action and role and meaning. It's just fantastic. It's the whole formula for nicknames. When I worked in the media during his playing days, I would celebrate this man as the baddest MFer in hockey and cheer on his vicious battles with great enthusiasm. When his playing days ended, if you asked me, I would have assumed he was a lug nut on skates, a born brawler, with what little he had between the ears beaten out of him over years of repeated head trauma. I assumed that he may be addicted to painkillers somewhere. I assumed that he followed the predictable storyline of former player fallen on tough times. You know what I didn't assume? That he'd be a successful lawyer. That never entered my mind. How wrong is that? We all do this. We try to fit life into predictable channels. We try to put our own conclusions on people based on our limited information. This is wrong at its core, and we all do it. What follows next is one of the most enjoyable and insightful conversations I've ever had on this podcast. Stu is amazing. 
And I'm not just saying that because I fear for my health after calling him a lug nut on skates. <laughs> I'm saying that because over the last few weeks, I've gotten a little glimpse into this man and I respect the hell out of him. Our conversation was long, so I'm going to break this into two parts. I am not editing out a single word. Part two will air on Wednesday. Part one starts now. Here's Stu Grimson. Hey, Stu, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm great, Brian. Um, never better. How about you? I am doing great. This is a real thrill for me because you and I connected a couple weeks over email. And I remember watching through your playing days and just to, to have this conversation and to talk a little bit more about your transition in, in life and your post playing days career, I just think is is so interesting. So thanks for jumping on this call with me. Oh, I'm I'm more than glad to be part of the conversation. I really am. It's uh, that's a very gracious way to describe uh, the the journey I've led. So I appreciate that. That's really encouraging. Oh, for sure. So there's a lot of topics that I want to speak about. So I'm glad we have some time. That's one of the fun things about a podcast is that we don't have to like rush through anything. So let's start out with your playing days in the NHL. You played for 13 seasons with seven different NHL franchises, and we often talk about the glory side of professional sports, you know, the money, the fans, the winning, all these young kids admiring you and wanting your autograph and people looking up to you and saying, I want to be an athlete someday. But as you look back, what was the hardest part about being a professional athlete? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and you don't often hear folks, uh, you know, talk, talking about that coming out the other side of it, I suppose. I, I can offer, you know, some some observations. And, and let me say up front, I mean, nobody enjoyed the career of professional athlete more than I did. It's a, <laughs> it's a wonderful way to make a living. It, you know, you, you get paid to play a sport that you love very much and really i you know i you and i've had this conversation uh prior the game has opened up a lot of doors for me both when i played and even certainly after uh having left the game so i'm i'm grateful for all that but there you know there is like anything there's there's a downside and you know you you end up and especially when you are raising a small a young family at the same time i, I think that would probably be the one of the primary you know uh challenges that i would reference you're you're often and for a player like me you're often picking up and moving and going to a different location and that's not always easy as a family we ended up being pretty transient while i played we're nicely settled in tennessee my kids are mostly grown at this point the youngest is yet to leave uh she's in her senior year at a school here in tennessee and, you know, everybody's pretty stable, pretty well settled now. But while our family was younger, we were moving around a lot. And, and that can be hard on you. I, I think the one other thing that I would reference to, Brian, response to your question, um, the role that I played within our sport is a, a rather unique one. Um, you're asked to provide kind of a, a physical support, a physical presence for your team when you play this enforcer type role. And it comes with, you know, it's its own peculiar set of challenges. And the challenges really relate to both the physical wear and tear on your body. And then there's an emotional kind of mental component to that as well. It's not an easy task 
kind of getting yourself up to this battle type mentality uh, 82 times a year over the course of the regular season and then the playoffs beyond that. It's, um, you know, I would never liken it to, to, to military service or, you know, to, to that type of combat. But and nonetheless, it, you know, you're, you're talking about dealing with and contending with guys that are capable of, of crushing human bone with their bare fists. Yeah. And, you know, you, you're, 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 you're getting yourself in a mind frame to, to go out and to enter into that, to that scenario nightly. And it's a, it, it's a challenging thing as well. So, it, you know, there are some, there are some, some, some difficult things that go along with this whole notion of uh, the career of a pro athlete. Okay, so I want to lean into that a lot. I mean, your nickname is the greatest nickname in all of sports, if you ask me. Like when you, <laughs> the, the Grim Reaper is the best nickname ever. But it, it also tells exact tells everybody exactly who you are in the league, right? I mean, you were an enforcer. You made that very clear in your in your answer that you just gave. So. I want to know if this fits your true personality, though. I mean, was this a role you were always suited for from your early playing days in juniors? Like, were you always this kind of a player? Or was this kind of what you had to morph into in order to make it into the league and get to this high of a level? Yeah, great, great question. I, I think I always had it in me. I, you <laughs> know, I grew up a pretty rough and tumble kid. Um uh, born and raised in Western Canada, kind of grew up in the West, grew up on uh, my uncle's owned a dairy farm as we were growing up. I, I lived a really, um, you know, I, I lived a pretty hearty uh, upbringing around that time. And I got into my share of scrapes, was always bigger than my peers, was always pretty aggressive. So, you know, to play that role w- wouldn't have come to uh, as a surprise to uh, anybody who kind of knew me at an earlier stage. But I talk about this in a, a book I, I recently published uh, along with uh, Penguin Random House back in Canada. Um, you know, I, I talk about this whole notion of reluctant warrior. And at an earlier stage in my uh, athletic career, I, I was very much that. Again, it kind of relates to the answer to the question I gave you previously. This whole role of enforcer, it's a challenging one emotionally, mentally to play. And when you're, you know, when you're somebody who, uh, you know, younger in your career, especially, and during particular periods in your career, you're not playing a lot. You're kind of relegated to that third line, fourth line status, but you're still being asked to play that role. It's hard to go from, oh, I've, I've been on the bench for, you know, a period, a period and a half at a clip continuously, and now the coach wants me to kind of go out and stir up the physical momentum in this game. Right. That can be a really daunting task, and I'll tell you what, it takes a while to grow into that role. So I guess the answer I'm giving you is kind of two parts. Yeah, I had that in my character a little bit, but it it still takes somebody uh, a while to kind of figure out mentally, gosh, how do I strap on a mindset to kind of do this role, play this role, and play it effectively? That's, 
you know, that's quite kind of an acquired skill. It takes some time to get your mind around that. Yeah. So I think that's an underrated part of what you had to do is, I, you know, I was thinking about this after you and I spoke last week and we kind of just, you know, talked through your background and your history and those sort of things we could prepare for this conversation. And I was thinking about this, like I've been in two fights in my entire life and the, anticip- <laughs> the, the anticipation of it is the worst part. Like all day, like I knew that I knew that this was going to happen. I knew this thing was headed to a, it, it was going, this was going to happen. And all day that anticipation was just wearing on me. It was like a weight on my chest. Right. I mean, for yeah. you, this was your day to day existence. Like you knew every day waking up that you were going to go out there and you were going to have to have a physical confrontation with some of the baddest men on the planet. Uh, how is you, you mentioned the mental aspect of it. How do you get yourself into that frame of mind where it doesn't just start to almost tear you apart mentally? Yeah, I tell you, it's it's the hardest thing to do. It really is. Um, you know, and there are some moments on the counter, the NHL schedules are tougher than others. You know, for me, um, you're dealing with that, that anxiety that, you know, that moment is coming, game day is 24 hours away, and, and just... You know, any garden variety game, you're you're dealing with the anxiety. Um, you know, for me, playing in Chicago, take as an example, it was a tough, tough era of the game. And our arch rival, the Detroit Red Wings, who we would see frequently within division play, um, you know, they dressed out guys like Bob Probert, Joey oh. Kosher, Randy McKay. You know, it's 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 a gauntlet of sorts when you know when you're talking about playing certain teams. So certain teams would kind of occupy your your state of mind more than others would, knowing that they just had much tougher tougher makeup in the way they presented. So for me, you know, getting to the real point of your question, how do you deal with that? It's, it's a difficult thing to kind of compartmentalize and not, you know, let yourself kind of be preoccupied by it. For me, I try to take advantage of uh, an escape of some kind. It would often be through my children, through my family, um, you know, find a way for us to create some family activity in advance of, um, you know, or in between yeah. NHL competition. If I was on the road and my family wasn't around, I developed a passion for uh, movies over the course. Well, I mean, I was always a big movie fan even before uh, pro hockey was a vocation for me, but I really took advantage of that. Being able to go to a theater, escape for two hours, two and a half hours in, in a great movie, I, you know, I relish that uh, opportunity to just kind of let my mind go somewhere else before I really had to fully embrace this whole this whole notion, this whole challenge of, uh, again, another round of NHL competition. Gosh, I couldn't even imagine. So you mentioned your book uh, with the aptly titled Grim Reaper, which I'm starting to read now and I'm really enjoying, I have to say, and everybody out there should get it. But you mentioned that you refer to yourself in that as a reluctant warrior. And I like that phrase very much. But did that ever change for you? Did you ever reach a point where this became your identity and you embraced it and you just knew this was what it was expected of you and it all became normal? or was this always something you had some reluctance towards? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think uh, it is really the, the, the first part of your question in that I did grow to a point where 
um, I, I was no longer reluctant. I had fully embraced the role. And I think the reluctant stage for me really came in my late teens, in my early 20s. I was kind of graduating up through the ranks. It was major junior hockey back in Canada. Then it became college hockey. Then it became minor pro hockey. This period of time was through my late teens and in my early 20s. And you're kind of going through this cycle of, oh, I have to kind of cut my teeth all over again. I have to fight for playing time almost literally. And, you know, that role is easier if you're playing in the game a lot. That role is a challenge early in your junior hockey career, your college career, your minor pro career, if you're being asked to play that physical role, but you're not playing much. So, you know, I kind of went in these ebbs and flows and was somewhat reluctant in that earlier stage in my career. But by the time I got to the NHL and it fully established myself, by the time I'm in my early 20s, sorry, mid-20s, I had kind of got to a place where, one, I think I had emotionally um and certainly physically matured to a point where I had the mental skill set to better deal, to better cope with the challenges I was facing. Mm -hmm. And then two, I think I had, I had the past experience of having gone through these ebbs and flows. And I'm kind of at a point where it's like, okay, this is my role. This is how I do it. Yes, it's challenging, but this is how I manage it, manage it. And it no longer kind of consumes me. I've adopted the equipment, the mental equipment to kind of help me me deal with it on a night-to-night basis so you know that's a long-winded way of answering your question but I was reluctant early on I became less reluctant maybe had fully embraced and am no longer reluctant by the time I hit my mid-20s and into my 30s not long-winded at all fascinating is the word I'd give it so thank you Uh, so one thing I keep picking up on too is that you identified with each one of the teams that you were with whether it was in minors whether it was in college whether whatever role you you were in and the pros you knew what your role was you knew how you how to fill it and you adapted to do what was needed how important is that in life in general to be able to see those things that are needed and adapt yourself into those voids yeah you know I, I, that's a great question and i don't i don't get asked that very often but i i really do think the 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 whole notion of and let's face it let me just kind of back up a step every it. athlete would love to to go on to 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 have a a fulfilling professional career and be that 40 goal scorer or to be you know top 10 on the leaderboard in golf or to be um you know the the first string quarterback on a football team but that's not always the case there's there's really a you know a, a narrow population that that actually you know becomes that elite level player there are many of us i i would say two-thirds of us on any team roster professional team roster you're playing some kind of a very specific niche type role and that's true of baseball it's true of basketball it's true of really every team sport out there and and really for me i think that was a unique advantage because having been somebody that was asked to play a specific a niche role as i left the sport and then went on to work in other vocations uh and i've done many many things since i left the game um you know you kind of realize hey if i'm going to go out there i'm going to kind of carve out a space for myself in the corporate world 
I've got to play a role again. I've got to be part of a team again. And how do I identify what that role is, what my skill set is, what skills I need to amplify or improve on so that I can be a better teammate, so that I can better um, accomplish whatever task my my particular team or company needs me to accomplish. So I have been kind of, as a pro athlete, grooming myself for, you know, going out there to work in a team environment even after leaving pro sports, I, I felt that to be a bit of an advantage for me, and it's helped me to adjust to life after hockey in that way. You and I talked prior to this interview, and my vibe, my takeaway from that conversation and the beginnings of this one is that you are someone with great introspection that also takes lessons from everything that you go through. Like, events in your life change the next phase. Like, you start to learn things and pick up on things and continue improving. And I, I kept thinking about, you told me a story about as a young player, you took a brutal beating at the hands of Dave Brown from the Oilers, and that kind of yeah. taught you some things. So can you share that story a little bit and what it, what you learned from it uh, from your early days yeah. in your career? Sure, happy to. It, really one of the great lessons of my life, and I think from it uh, I, I learned a lot about myself. But you're, it's, it's a very accurate way of kind of describing the way I'm wired, uh, Brian. I tend to be pretty uh, introspective. I am nobody's more critical of me than me, and that's not to my detriment. I just I'm I'm quick to take a hard look at myself in just about every situation. Dave Brown for me was my welcome to the NHL moment. Uh, he was a member and he was, you described earlier, he was really the baddest man on the planet, certainly on <laughs> ice skates at that moment in time. Big, tough guy, you know, probably the heavyweight champion of the NHL uh, as I'm kind of cutting my teeth in the league. And I got called up. Uh, I broke in with the Calgary Flames of the NHL. Our arch rival is the Edmonton Oilers. It was one of the greatest and remains one of the greatest rivalries in hockey. And I knew as I came up with the Calgary Flames – as part of the front end of a home-and-home home series against the Edmonton Oilers, I'm saying to myself, if I'm going to make it in the NHL, if I'm going to carve out a path for myself, the road, that path leads through Dave Brown. Right. And in my first outing against Dave Brown, the front end of this home-and-home home series, uh, I mean, I could hardly muster up the saliva to spit on the ice. I was so nervous looking across the ice at this behemoth that I was going to lock horns with. <laughs> but long story made shorter, I I did very well. I, I actually I knocked out the, the heavyweight champion of the NHL. But fast forward two nights to the second encounter, Brownie got the better of me and got the better of me to the point where he fractured my uh, the orbital around the top of my right eye, fractured my cheekbone. I had two and a half hours worth of facial reconstructive surgery. <laughs> I suffered the worst beat that anybody in my role could really ever expect to face. And the ironic part about that is I was that reluctant warrior kind of leading up to these moments. And... To, to really to this moment, Brian, and I, you know, in the moments after I had a chance to kind of reflect through what I was experiencing, what I was dealing with, I kind of came to, and I really recall having this conversation with myself, I have now suffered the worst beat anybody could ever suffer in this role. I've got two choices. I can 
I can pack up my bags, I can call it quits, I can say this is over, or I can yank myself up by my bootstraps, I can get back into the fray, and I can try to put what is a bad beat behind me. And I said to myself, if I can do that, if I can get past this, I really have nothing left to fear because I've been through the worst of the worst. I really have nothing left to fear. So a number of realizations kind of came true to me at that moment. The reluctance that I had been feeling kind of came from the fear I had over suffering a loss. And I think the realization that, hey, everybody suffers a loss and it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond to that loss. Um, you know, all these lessons, all these realizations are kind of circulating in my head in a very positive way. And I kind of came out the other side of that moment in time, Brian, going, I can come back from this. And as I do, I really have nothing left to fear. So what could have been the worst loss and the most defeating moment uh, for for any other person for me ended up being a really a very liberating experience. I talk about it at length in the book, but that's essentially, you know, in a very short form, kind of what I went through. I think that is such a great life lesson for anyone. You don't have to be an NHL athlete or a pro athlete to have that same mentality. I mean, we talk to our kids all the time about how don't be afraid to fail. You will lose sometimes and you have to be able to understand and learn from that and pick yourself back up and move forward. And that's one of the, the lessons yeah. we try to give them all the time. These are life lessons. It's not just NHL player lessons. Yeah, it's a great point. And I'll tell you that, that too, you've identified right there, probably perhaps the, 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 I guess the light bulb moment for me. I had been reluctant to write this book for several years because I just, I didn't think there was much that I, I had to offer in the way of a story. But now that I've kind of been through it and I've had some of those very same comments come back to me through other people, not hockey players, necessarily, but people who have read my story, learned my lessons, or at least read about my lessons as I've learned them. And these people are kind of speaking back to me going, hey, Stu, what you went through in that situation, and it's not just the Dave Brown situation, right. though that is a, you know, it is a graphic illustration. Um, it's been really encouraging to me because the, the lessons I've learned have spoken to people in, in other vocations, other contexts, and they have been encouraged by that. That has encouraged me and, and affirmed me for all the reasons I kind of stepped into it and, and wrote the book. And there's, there's lots of other lessons like that inside the, inside the pages of that, that book. No question. Oh, there are. It's a fantastic read and I'm just digging into it. Uh, so I can't wait to get through even more of it. So you can't help but think when you hear those stories and some of the brutality of it, like I love your reminiscing. I love to think of the old stories and some of the things that happened, you know, when I was younger and watching, but you can't help but think about the discussion we currently have going on so much in sports in general about mental health for athletes. You know, that conversation is yeah, getting, yeah. getting louder and louder. And you've talked about the mental anguish of being an enforcer, but then there's also the physical side of some of the, 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 the beatings that you gave out or, or were administered. How much of a responsibility does a league bear in protecting the players and do you feel like they're doing enough is there more that needs to happen or would it get to a point where it's it's no longer the same game like how does how do you find that that dance that fine line between keeping the right. game and making it fun and enjoyable and fast-paced and physical but also protection 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a great discussion to have. It really is, and I feel at the end of the day, in spite of all the um, you know the the litigation you read about, in spite of all the the several negative stories you hear about it, and and those really stem from an earlier era in the game. I think our sport and really team sport, physical sport as a whole, have done a really good job of making. Uh, contact sports environment uh, as safe as possible. And they continue to look at and explore even more ways we can reasonably make contact sports safer for those that participate in it. And I think the best way to really explain or or to to directly answer the question you're raising, Brian, is to kind of, you know, talk or for me to maybe reference my like kind of how I come out the other side of all this. If I had to do it over again, I would still do it. I do it in a different way, knowing what I know today. And that is when I suffered head trauma, I would be quicker to self-report, to tell my trainer or to tell my medical professional, Hey, I sustained a head injury here. You probably need to take me out of the mix because my brain needs an opportunity to heal. It's it's well documented, and there are many many like me. Uh, when I went through it, I didn't self-report. I would keep it to myself, and there were many many instances when I know now that my brain was in a bad way, but I put myself in harm's way in a really short span of time. Didn't give myself the opportunity to heal, and I suffered for it. I left the game due to post concussion syndrome. I lead a very normal life today. I think I've come out the other side of it. Uh, substantially, health-wise, I'm, I'm really, I think I'm fully intact. Time will probably tell more about that as time goes on. But again, my point is, if I went through it and did it all over again, I would give my brain a chance to heal itself um, rather than jumping right back into the fray because the professionals will tell you they don't know everything there is to know about head trauma and its ill effects, but you sure do need to give your brain a a chance to heal as you go through this. So, you know, if, if that's part of the recipe as we're dealing with head trauma today, um, you know, I, I think the upside certainly outweighs any potential downside for athletes. Yes, I might get banged up, but as long as I give myself an opportunity and the medical staff around me to, to make sure that I'm back to 100% again, um, you know, I, I, I think the risk that we assume is a fairly reasonable one for athletes at the end of the day. I think this is such a, I mean, I'm so fascinated by this conversation. When you and I first connected and obviously my first thought, it, I mean, I literally, you emailed me and my response was, wait, one of my buddies is pranking me because there's no no chance the Grim Reaper is re- reaching <laughs> out to that. me. Like I really thought somebody was pranking me because in my media career, I used to celebrate you and I'm not just being a fanboy here, but I used to think that Grim Reaper was the greatest name ever. And every time you got into a fight, I'd make sure it was on every TV in the newsroom. Like it, seriously, it's like I was a little fanboy here, but I love this contrast. The fact that my perception of you was this rugged six foot seven, 240 pound brawler. And yet you're like the ultimate contradiction. You have the greatest nickname in the world. 
your your brawler. You've got videos all over YouTube, and you're now the chief counsel for a luxury home exchange. Like, it's amazing to me. <laughs> I so I have to ask: Has education always been important to you? And prior to the NHL and the persona we all know. Were you a good student like back in Canada? Like, I mean, you're extremely articulate. You're extremely easy to talk to. And I'm not saying it like, oh, my gosh, I'm so surprised. But yeah, a little bit. I mean, I'm a little bit surprised. Is this is education yeah. always something that's been a value of yours? Oh, yeah, without question. I think it's something that was really instilled in me by my parents uh, at a very early age. Um, none of my none of my family was really college educated. They instilled in me, my parents did, number one, a great work ethic. They were both raised on the farm, you know, grew up in Western Canada like me, raised on in and around farm country, and you did for yourself. If it was going to happen, you had to make it happen. And um, I just, I grew up in an environment like that where we did for ourselves. And mom especially uh, was insistent upon, um, you know, even if you're pursuing a career in pro hockey, uh, at some level, you know, education has to be, you know, has to be part and parcel with that. So I got to jump on my education before I ever uh, signed my first pro contract, even took uh, some online correspondence courses while I played at the early stages of my career. But then once I left the game, I knew that I would finish off my undergrad and I would probably go on to do a graduate degree of some kind for this reason. I, I knew I wanted to do something else meaningful and exciting after I left the game. And I knew that I needed to kind of, um, improve, I should say, bolster my marketable skills, my ability to, to go out there and do something exciting. And a degree in the law made made the most sense for me. So, yeah, education has been, you know, it's been on the, you know, it's been on the, the, the grid on the table for me for, for a very long time. And I'll tell you just, you know, anecdotally, I, I remember, again, having a conversation with myself as I left the game, Brian, going, I... I believe that a graduate degree in the law makes really good sense for me because it will give me the broadest range of choices um, to do something, again, meaningful and exciting after I leave the game. And I said that, but I wasn't 100% certain of that. Looking yeah. back on that today, and I've worked in a number of different you know, vocations. I've been in-house counsel for our players' union. I litigated for several years. I'm now uh, chief counsel for a really exciting company called Third Home that you mentioned. And, um, you know, it's kind of come back to me. That conversation I had my, with myself has come back to me. The practice of law has opened up a lot of uh, a lot of doors for me, along with my career in pro sports. And I'm and I'm very grateful for that. I'm smiling right now as I think to myself of like coming into a boardroom or some sort of a deposition or something like that and seeing you across the table and being like, oh, my God, what, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> oh, it's just funny. Trust me, people, there is more incredible stuff we are talking about in part two. Stu shares inc- really great insight and advice for student athletes explains the community of enforcers in the NHL, which was really fascinating discusses his role at NHL network as a senior analyst and so much more. So if, if you're hooked already, like I am, uh, I bought his book, the grim reaper, and it is 
incredible. Uh, but please make sure get the book 100%, but also tune in for part two on Wednesday. I hope you enjoyed part one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please rate and review wherever you listen to the podcast and uh, share with friends, subscribe, all that good stuff, because the more of you makes this podcast much more powerful and reaches more people and can make a change. So thank you for that. Thank you for all of you. Now, be safe out there and put on a mask. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Wednesday.